Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for this next bit of our time together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you're here with us and don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. Right in front of you, there should be a little black hardback Bible. You'll find what we're going to look at this morning on page 896. But don't just, don't just have it in front of you looking at it for the next little bit of our time. We want you to take that with you. We would love for you to continue reading the rest of the letter that we're going to consider a part of today. And, and, and especially would love to encourage you to read the Gospel of Mark. You'll find it in the table of contents. Uh, it, it's the, the most efficient, uh, most straight to the point story about who Jesus is and what Jesus taught and then what Jesus did to rescue us. And we'd love to, to encourage you to read that. You can do it in just a few minutes this afternoon. And then we'd love to talk to you about what you see there. Uh, this morning, for the next little bit of our time, we're back into 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul is writing a letter, doing a little pastoral care from a distance for a church that he founded, that he left behind to go found churches in other cities, and then discovered to be a huge, stinking mess. Reports have come back to Paul wherever it is that he's gone, that things are not good in this church that he loves so much, this church that he founded. And this church itself had sent him a letter asking him questions about a whole host of things they were confused about or things that they were divided over. We've almost reached the part of this letter where, where Paul is going to go issue by issue through those problems. You know, the things he'd heard about that were going wrong, the things they'd asked him about in their letter to him. Uh, from, from almost this point forward, it's just going to be a, a list of topics, like a bullet list. One after another, he takes up what they're interested in or what they're dealing with and tries to help them apply the cross to it. And these problems that they've got are massive problems. Paul's going to, he's going to correct them for basically endorsing some form of incest in the church. He's going to pounce on them for, for, for the rich showing up the poor, even when they're celebrating communion together. He's going to have to tell them not to participate in the temple rituals, even those that included prostitution. In one situation after another, he's going he's to call them out for the ways their culture was influencing their church. But as I've said before, and I'll say again now, perhaps the most striking thing to me about this letter is the way that he begins it. Right at the beginning, where he's got their full attention, where they're locked in on what he has to tell them and haven't drifted to whatever else is on their mind. He spends nearly the first quarter of this 16-chapter letter talking to them about division and about the root of their division, their pride. Friends, the greatest threats to our life as a church, to our health and our unity and our witness to Jesus aren't out there in the culture that, that pulls at us. They're in here and not just in here, in here, in our hearts where pride still lives and dwells. There is no greater threat to the health and unity of a local church than pride. We can't live the life we're called to. We can't bear the witness we are called to bear so long as we're focused on what we bring to the table or on what we want for ourselves, or on how we stack up against one another. So Paul, in this letter, in chapter 3, just like in chapters 1 and 2, he's trying to pull his friends' focus off themselves and put it on God, off of their own ambitions, off of their, their own interests, 
off of what they have to offer to everyone else and what they hope will be noticed about them, off of all of that, and put it right on to God who's at work among them. From one angle after another throughout this chapter, he's going to tell them that this church belongs to God and show them what difference that makes. And we want to learn from them. We want to track with them step by step. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 this morning. I'm not going to read all of it at once. But I do want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first four verses of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Friends, as I mentioned, all through this chapter, one major underlying theme. Paul wants them to know this church, they themselves, it's God's. The, the antidote to their pride and their obsession with how they measure up is to remember who God is, what God has done, what God has offered, what God demands. You are God's. That's the major theme. And in several different metaphors, Paul explains what he means. I see three of them throughout this chapter. I want to show you each one. Here's number one. You are God's field, so be humble. You are God's field, so be humble. That's the first metaphor that Paul takes them to in chapter 3. The opening of this chapter, the verses I just read, is another direct challenge. I mean, he goes right into their face. He calls them brothers. He says they're in Christ. He believes them to be Christians. They're part of the mature and spiritual people he was talking about in chapter 2. But now he makes it clear he can't talk to them like that. He can't address them as if they're Christians because they've been acting like a bunch of babies. They've been carrying on, he says, in a merely human way, as if they didn't have Christ between them. And we're going to say a whole lot more in a minute about about what Paul means. Put a pin in that, in these few verses, for just a minute. For, For now, what I want to do is zoom in on how Paul begins to correct them for the way they've been treating one another and treating their church. This this jockeying for position. These comparison games they were playing, all this, all this I'm of Paul, no, I'm of Apollos kind of self-branding they were doing. All of that only works when you take your eyes off God's role in your local church and play up your role. And Paul wants to reset their focus, to take it off of this or that gifted, charismatic leader and put it onto the power of God that matters most. Look back at the text with me. Look at verse five. Let me read you the next several verses. You'll see what I mean. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom he believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, 
but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You see what Paul's doing there? He's picturing this church as a field of crops that belongs to God. Leaders like Paul and Apollos, they have a role to play. And, and maybe, you know, their own skills or their own interests or their own contributions don't look exactly the same. You know, Paul has something he brings to the table and Apollos has something different that he brings to the table. Fair enough. Let's say Paul planted. Let's say Apollos was really faithful about watering. So far, so good. But what Paul wants them to know is, that, hey, let's get real for a moment. God is the one who gave the growth through all of it. God is the one who gave the growth. Without him, those seeds Paul planted are just dormant and dead. Without God, that water just makes dirt into mud. No matter how faithful Apollos is at pouring water into the dirt. I mean, look how he says it in verse 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. That's strong language, isn't it? I mean, we have to be careful with that language because on the one hand, we, we do have to balance what he's saying here with what he says in other places, including a few verses later from now, uh, where he's, he, he does say it's important to have faithful teachers. A healthy local church depends on that. Real clear, real faithful teaching about what God has said in his word. But, but here, he's trying to make a point about scale. You know, compared to God's role, their role may as well be Nothing. <laughs> Without what God brings to the table, what they bring to the table is lifeless and therefore it's, it's pointless. Earlier this week on a, on a, a warm, almost spring-like afternoon, Lindsay called me super excited because she'd gone out into the front yard and she saw the first green sprouts coming up of some bulbs that she'd planted back in the fall. She got a whole bunch of these, like bags and bags of these dead-looking bulbs. And she put them into the ground and then we waited. Now, she had a role in what's breaking through the ground now, for sure. She planted those bulbs in the right spot. We paid attention to the, to, the, to the climate. It was at the right time of year. Paid attention to how much water overall they're getting from the rain that falls. And all of that matters. There is a role there. But think about, think about all that we can't control about the process that's led to these little green sprouts popping up through the ground at just this time of year. We, we didn't create the bulbs, for example. We didn't give those bulbs any kind of properties that respond well to nutrients in the soil or to, to just the right amount of water. Speaking of the soil, we didn't create this nutrient-rich, wonderful soil that we have here in Middle Tennessee. You know, if you can find a spot without rocks, that soil is good. Anything will grow in that soil. I mean, we could have planted those, we could have planted those bulbs in the Arizona desert and our role would have looked exactly the same, but those bulbs will have no shot at life. We inherit a soil that we can't take credit for. We didn't send all this rain we've been getting the past month or so. We didn't hang the sun in the sky to, to supply its energy. So, yeah, we have a role. Those bulbs come up because we planted them and maybe added a little water. But compared to what we don't control in all of that, what we do control may as well be nothing. It may as well just be nothing. God has to give that growth. 
And friends, exactly the same thing holds true in church life. Exactly the same thing. That's what Paul's been saying in that last chapter. It's what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. Paul knew his role. I came preaching Christ and him crucified. That's all I wanted to know among you, he said. I gave you that straightforward message and I put it in as simple a style as I could possibly put it in because I want you to see it's God's power that brings life to a church, not mine. It's not the creativity or charisma of any one leader. It is God who works through his word to bring about growth in his people. I mean, think about the message that he brought. The message of the gospel is this, friends. It's a message that, that we owe our whole lives to God. We wouldn't have taken a breath if he had not given it to us. And even though we owe our whole life to him, we've sinned against this God who made us. We've lived as if our lives are our own, even though we owe them completely to him. Every one of us has done this. But he is a God of unimaginable love and mercy. This same God who loved us into being has now loved us to redeem us. He sent his son, his own son, to take the punishment we deserved. Through his son, he made the way this, this, this possibility for peace, peace with him and peace with each other. We just have to acknowledge that we need it. But us getting to the point where we know we need that, us getting to the point where we look at the cross and see anything but shame, well, that's a miracle. It takes a miracle to get to that point. That's what Paul said last week in chapter two. It's only the spirit that has revealed these things to us. God did it all and we would have, we would have had no life to say, yes, please, unless the spirit came in and changed what we want. Unless the Spirit opened up our eyes to see it. He had to do all of it from beginning to end. And he has. And unless he's still at work now, Paul can preach Christ crucified till he's blue in the face. That's exactly what he did. But it's just hot air spewing words unless God gives growth. And for us to have the unity and health that we need as a church, friends, for us to grow the way we want to, we need to all be on the same page about where that growth comes from. We need to all know better than to think if we just did this or that differently, we could turn things around or get things where we want to see them. We need to all know and therefore all plead with him to provide the growth we're longing to see. And I think it's a great practice in the life of our church to just look around for signs that God is giving growth, that he is at work, that we can see him answering our prayers. Every week at staff meeting, the first thing we do is we pray name by name, staff, each staffer claiming one name next in row in the, in the membership directory. We just pray over our friends, all working our way through it slowly throughout the year so that you have what you need to continue growing in holiness and, 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 in, and in faith. And then you know what the next thing we do is every week in our staff meeting, before we, before we look back to the Sunday that was and try to learn from all the things that didn't go well, <laughs> we do a lot of that. Before we look at what could have been better, you know what we do? We go around the room and every person shares something they were encouraged by on that Sunday. Something, some evidence that they have that God was at work among us. That he was doing things, even through our feeble efforts, that we couldn't possibly do on our own. That he worked even despite everything that went wrong. Despite all that we might have done wrong. I think it's just a wonderful part of a normal, healthy life of a church. If you guys are all doing that with each other too. Like looking around. Where do you see him working? Where do you see those green sprouts breaking up through the soil? Where do you see evidence that he's doing things you couldn't do? Claim it for what it is. Celebrate it. Tell somebody about it. That's how we protect ourselves from the kind of complaining that always leads to divisiveness. The kind of complaining that comes so naturally to us if we're not careful. Let's celebrate that God is at work and let's 
Let's pray to him to keep working because we are God's field. That means we ought to be humble. We know better than to think we can give growth. It all depends on him. That's metaphor number one. That's the first thing we can't forget. We are God's field. We ought to be humble and look to him to grow us. And that leads to metaphor number two. Paul actually introduced it right after he said, you're God's field. He's mixing his metaphors and he doesn't even care. Verse nine, we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field. You're also God's building. And then he switches into a a section where he explains what he means by that, what it means for a church to be God's building. Here's point number two. You are God's building, so be careful. Be careful. In verse 10, let me read verse 10 to 17 for you. Paul shifts his metaphor to this one of a building. Look, look with me. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul writes, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. In this, uh, in this section, Paul's still talking about the church as gods. He's still trying to reframe their perspective and pull it off themselves and what they bring to the table and put it onto God, what he brings to the table, what he wants for the church that's his. But if the, if the focus in that first metaphor the church as God's field was on what God does in a church to give growth. That it all depends on him. The focus in this second metaphor is on what we are supposed to do. On our role. Because we really do have one. And it's true that, that nothing we do matters apart from what he's doing among us. That, that if all we have is what we're doing, we don't have enough. And Paul wants us to trust him and look to him. But what we do matters too. And Paul wants us to know what our role is. And even more than that, on top of that, he wants us to be careful in how we take it up. I'm guessing as you, uh, as we read through these verses, probably the main thing you noticed about them is the strong warning that's built into what Paul says. It's clear that Paul's horizon for the work of a local church is the day of judgment. That's verse 13. That's a day on which the the quality of our work will be tested by fire, he says. And in verse 17, he warns anyone who destroys God's temple, this building that belongs to God, 
that person will be destroyed by God. That is, that is strong warnings. And we want to understand where he's coming from. Learn what he wants us to learn. Walk through them carefully here, bit by bit. As we do that, you're going to see two things. Two things to know about our role. The first is this. Be careful how you build God's building. And the second will be, be careful you don't destroy God's building. Be careful how you build. Be careful you don't destroy God's building. So first, Paul says we should be careful how we build God's building. That's verse 10. Paul laid this foundation. Now someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. There's only one foundation for God's building. That's Jesus and what he's done on the cross. That's verse 11. No one could lay a foundation other than that one I've already laid, Jesus Christ. But it matters how we build on top of that foundation. I think what Paul's doing here is he's picturing teachers coming in after him, leaders who would follow later, and all the members who are doing their work for the church, building on top of this foundation that he laid. And he wants to make sure that what we build with, our building materials, matches the foundation that he's already laid. That what we build with matches what we're building on. That it's as tied to Jesus as the foundation is. There are things you could use to build up the church, in other words, that might look good from a distance, but won't last. They might get bigger and bigger and bigger, but they won't be sustainable. They won't be secure. They, they won't be stable enough to stand up when it's tested. And I think what he's talking about here is pretty straightforward because we, if we zoom out to what he has been talking about in chapters one and two, we know what's still on his mind. He, he knows they were trying to build their church. They were tempted to build their church with stuff that played to the crowd. He knew you could, you could build a crowd by telling people what they want to hear. You know, if you just offer up what you already know they're interested in because you're able to read the room, you'll have a kind of growth. In their case, that was fancy rhetoric. They loved it. It was entertaining to them. Polished language. This was like a first century style night out on the town. Was to go listen to someone impress you with what they could, how they could speak. You know, and one way to build this church in Corinth would have been to figure out, okay, what folks want to figure out is there, is there some missing piece in what they've already got and figure out how to meet that gap. It's just basic economics. You figure out where the need is in the market and you supply it better than anyone else is. That was tempting to them. He could see them giving into that temptation. But Paul knows if a leader builds a church around himself or if a leader builds a church around things that he can offer that no one else can, if he builds it around human values, such as entertainment or, or perceived insider status, then, then he's building something that cannot possibly stand the test of time. It will fade away. Paul wants to build with the same message he laid as a foundation. He wants people to know and love the word about Jesus. He doesn't want to build a crowd for its own sake. He wants to build people with this hope. And so if, the, if what you're building with, if the, if the materials you're using has nothing to do with the hope that's been laid as the foundation for the church, it's, it's like building with hay or straw or wood. It will not stand up to the fire that's coming. The word of God, on the other hand, the message about Christ and him crucified, that does a work that holds up against anything. That's what Paul's trying to say. 
Friends, it's so important for us to see that that what Paul's talking about here in this paragraph is not a hypothetical scenario. He believes there's a real day coming, an actual day, when we will stand before God and all that we've done will be seen as it really is before the one who, who really matters. That won't be our online followers. It won't be our next door neighbors. It'll be the God who made us. The God who established his church at great cost to himself. And on that day, when we stand before him, when our work is seen for what it is to him, on that day, it'll be manifest. And if the work survives, Paul says, if it holds up, the worker will receive a reward. And if it doesn't survive, the worker will lose it. He'll be saved, but his work will come to nothing. Paul doesn't say exactly what kind of reward is at stake here. I know we'd love to know exactly what he means. I'm, I'm as convinced as I can be he's not talking about whether or not they'll be able to enjoy God and God's kingdom. He assumes that the person he's talking about here is a Christian, is going to stand the, the, the judgment day in Christ, wrapped up in Jesus' righteousness. He even says that to make sure we don't misunderstand him. You'll be saved even though your work will be dried up, will be burned up. I, I also don't think that he's talking about a bigger mansion in glory or more jewels in a crown or anything else related to the kind of status that he's trying to get them not to care about here. I'm convinced the reward he has in mind or the loss that a worker must suffer on the day of judgment is the people that you spent your time on, the people that you've built up. Paul even alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's writing a second letter to his friends and he talks again about the day of judgment and he talks about on that day, he he says, I I was among you in all sincerity just preaching the word to you because on that day, I want to be able to boast in you and you and me. And what he means is that on that day, we will see if what we trusted was Christ. I will see if that's who who you put all your life on. You will see if you've been carrying on the work that I began with the same tools and the same materials that I began it. Friends, besides being with Christ himself, besides being with Jesus on the day of judgment, for the pastor who loves Christ and believes this gospel, there could be no greater reward than seeing your people survive the day of judgment. Getting through that day together in Christ alone. That is the reward that Paul lived for. That is what he longed for. He wanted to see his friends in glory, fireproof, because covered up in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. For any pastor who trusts in Christ, there could be no greater loss than to arrive on the day of judgment and to see the people you loved and poured into did not survive that judgment. Because they came to it wrapped in something other than Jesus. I think that's what Paul has in mind. That's the reward and the loss. He's saying, be careful what you build with. If you build people in anything other than the gospel, you will build them in something that looks good for now, maybe, but will not stand in the judgment to come. 
Build with the gospel. Build people in this gospel if you want to see them last. If you want to see a reward that will survive the day of judgment. One image that we have often used around here based on a book that I think is so helpful in understanding what a church's ministry has really got to be about is the image of the trellis and the vine. I just got finished talking a little bit about this in our new members class just this morning. Reading this book right now with a group of friends here in our church. It's a book that describes the work of the church in two categories, both of which matter, but one of which matters more. In a church, you need a healthy trellis to support the work of the vine. The trellis is things like this great building here. You know, you guys have a place to sit and it's relatively warm or temperature appropriate in here because we put a lot of work into having a trellis to support the the ministry of the word that's happening right now in your life. That trellis includes things like, like having staff to help coordinate the work of our church to make sure all the needs are met. The trellis includes things like, like really wonderful children's programming on a Sunday morning or adult Bible study classes on a Sunday morning. Organized, planned, announced with all the right rooms and all the right structures in place to pull them off well. That's trellis. And it matters. But what ultimately matters, the reason we need a trellis in the first place is that we care about the growth of a vine. A vine that is people encountering Jesus through his word. The work of the word in an individual's life to draw them deeper and deeper into trust in Christ and deeper and deeper into obedience in Christ. That's the vine that matters. That's what all of this trellis is for. The problem is that sometimes we can get drawn into that trellis work because we can see it so much easier. It's so much more measurable and it looks like it's that much more controllable. But vine work, people work, trying to apply Jesus to the ins and outs of our lives, that's messy work. And it oftentimes seems like it's not doing any good. You know, and you can just pour more and more and more time and, and seem to be getting nowhere. It's always easy to lose sight of the growth of the vine and to be drawn into the growth of a trellis because the trellis responds to us in predictable ways. The trellis is measurable in predictable metrics. But you know, guys, on the day of judgment, beautiful buildings like this one and well-run, well-staffed, efficient programs, as great as they are, as useful as they are, they don't survive that fire. They don't go on with us into glory. They aren't the kind of building that Paul is talking about. And if our trellis isn't useful for the vine, they're a distraction from the real work, not a help to it. And this text is such a gift to those of us who serve our church as elders for keeping our focus where it belongs on what he's told us matters most, the people that he's brought here and the word that they need. Guys, that's the only work that's gonna stand up, the only work that'll stand the test of time. I know it's hard to measure this kind of work. It's impossible to control it. And, and all too often, you can't tell if it's making any difference at all. Sometimes, I'm talking to my fellow elders here, wherever you guys are around the room. Sometimes I know it also feels like we're hugging a parade. That's how somebody put it. There's just so much transience, always has been. This is a big city. People come, people go. You pour into them for a time. Sometimes the, the most obvious 
difference that a word is making in somebody's life is, is, is being made in somebody's life who's going on to another church in some other city for some other season of their life. We have to remember that our work in people with the word is not measured today. It is measured by, by that day, the day to come, the day of judgment. And our work is not going to be measured by the size of our membership here. It's going to be measured by the, by the faith of those we've served. I think often about what it must have been like for those who put their lives into building the great medieval cathedrals in Europe. You know, that, you know the cathedral of Notre Dame? And it took over 200 years to build that thing. You know, the average life expectancy at that time was like 35. I think how many, how many stone workers had to cut stone, haul stone, set stone up on those walls day after day after day building something they had never seen before could not imagine they lived in huts and something they would die without seeing completed trusting that it was going to be part of something that would one day be beautiful Uh, building a church is like that We won't get to see what we've built until glory. And we keep doing it now because we trust that as we cut these stones and set these stones up on a wall, day after day after day, serve up the gospel over and over, over and over, over and over for as long as we have somebody, that we are doing our small part in a work God is doing, in a work that is beautiful and lasting, and that one day we'll get to see. Friends, if you're not serving as an elder here, you know, you have a role here too. I think the the, the primary focus of this text is on leadership. Uh, So so the the primary takeaway is for those of us who do serve in that role or who come to serve in that role someday. But but guys, your role as members, it's so crucial in this overall work. Because you, you have a power you may not recognize to encourage those of us who, who, who lead as elders to keep going or potentially to pull us away from this focus that God has given us in his word. I'm just going to be straight with you. When I examine my own heart and what could make me vulnerable to building with something that, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, that, that isn't going to stand the test of time. You know, the, 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 when I feel myself pulled towards putting time and energy into things that aren't easily tied back to Christ and to the lives of our people, it, it isn't from looking over my shoulder at, what they've got going on at, you know, at the Y or some other organization around here that seems to have a lot of good life and energy. And it isn't from looking down the street at what another church has got going on and trying to compare it with what we have here. My greatest temptation is going to come from you guys, from my desire to please you. I love you so much. I want you to be pleased and happy here. And if you really wanted me to divide my time and attention some other way, to focus my work in giving you something different. It will be hard for me to say no to you. I think I speak for the rest of the guys too, if that's what we're hearing. Do you know, it puts wind in our sails when you come to us and say, give me more Jesus. (laughs) Give me more Jesus. I want more Jesus. Will you please, I'm praying for you as you prepare to teach this Sunday. I'm praying for you because I need more Jesus. and I know that's what you want to give me. Or when you, know, when you know that there's pastoral care going on, that, that we're spending our time investing in people who have real needs and real struggles and who need a real hope that only Jesus gives them. 
When you say, yeah, I'm glad you're spending your time there, more time there, please go and do that. I know that's what this work is. I want to thank you for being such wonderful encouragers of this kind of work that matters so much. And friends, not only do you have a role in encouraging that work, it's partly your work too. Because what the elders do here to teach and lead is equipping you to do that kind of work in your own life. Every time you go to someone with this word, you are building on a foundation that has been laid. And on the day of judgment, you will see in God's presence the reward of what you've done. You will never be sorry for whatever time and effort you put into encouraging people with the gospel. That work will stand on the day of judgment when nothing else will. So look for ways you can do more and more and more of it. It is your work too, brothers and sisters. The first thing Paul tells us to be careful about is to be careful not, to be careful to how we build God's building. The second thing he tells us to be careful about is to be careful not to destroy God's building. Now that was verses 16 and 17. You can see how precious the church and its unity is to God from what Paul says in those verses. You are God's temple. So now he's still talking about us as God's building, but he's narrowing it down and telling you more about what he means. You're not God's tool shed. You're his temple. You're the place where his spirit dwells. There is no more sacred building than this one. You are his own house. You are the symbol of his presence and his beauty and his glory on his earth. Every local church is sacred to God. And that's why the warning of verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Friends, that is a real warning. God is not like the impulsive older brother who overreacts to something that was done. You knock over my Legos, I punch you in the face. It can seem like that here if you read it quickly. No, God's, judge, God's justice is perfect. It's balanced exactly as it ought to be between the value of the thing that is threatened and the response to those who threaten it. Paul is saying, he's telling us how God feels about his church. It is the temple of his spirit. It is the bride for his son. It is precious to him. And because it's precious to him, it's infinitely precious. And so he will punish the one who treats it like rubbish. The one who doesn't care how his actions or words affect this thing God is building. The rest of this letter is, is, is basically Paul's practical application of this point. He's going to say one thing after another that they were doing that threatened to destroy God's church. They were tearing it apart. He's going to show us what not to do. Chapters 5 and 6 tell us, don't act like sexual sin isn't a big deal. That'll destroy God's temple. Chapters after that will tell us, when you insist on your rights to eat whatever you want, even if somebody else gets hurt or even if someone else's conscience is wounded, you're threatening to destroy God's church. It's what, it's what they threatened when the rich people ate whatever they wanted in front of the poor people who had nothing. You're using communion with God, the Lord's Supper, to show off their status. That's chapter 11. That threatens to destroy God's church. Don't do that. I could go on. We will go on. But in some, it's, it, it's the risk to God's church, this, this destruction he's talking about is anything that threatens the church's unity in Christ. And Paul is pushing his friends here to be as jealous for unity and peace as God is. And we'll say much more about that in weeks to come. 
For now, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you where Paul does in the last few verses of chapter 3. This is just going to take a minute. This, I should have warned you guys about this at the first. The first couple of points are really long, and then the last point is really, really short. We're now at that really, really short last point. Third metaphor. We are not just God's field. We are not just God's building. You are God's children, so be thankful. You are God's children, so be thankful. Look at verses 18 to 23. Let no one deceive himself, Paul says. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and your Christ's, and Christ is God's. There's a lot of familiar themes in these verses, themes we've already been talking about for the last several weeks. But he builds to a flourish in this chapter that ties the whole section together with what he's been talking about since chapter 1. That's verses 21 to 23. He basically grabs them and shouts in their face, yet again, stop it! Stop your posturing. Stop your rivalries. Stop your boasting about, about who's on the inside and who's out. Just stop boasting in men. You can see really clearly what he's talking about if you go back to the very first verses in this chapter. He was talking to them as if they were behaving like mere humans. Remember that language, verse 3 and 4? They're behaving in an only a human way, as if they're still of the flesh. While there's jealousy and strife among you, he said, are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? What he means is that you're living like you're on your own. You're living in this competitive dog-eat-dog style as if what matters most is in short supply and you only get what you can grab on your own before somebody else grabs it. In their case, it was honor. They wanted honor. They wanted something to boast about. They looked around that room and they agreed with him from chapter one. Not many people here are of noble birth, that's for sure. I look around this room, I don't see any powerful people either. They sure aren't very wise what does that mean? What does that say for me if I'm here with this lot? And so they see Paul is coming and say, there's my ticket to the next status level. I'm not a Paul kind of Christian like these old, you know, these fools, these powerless people. I'm, I'm with Apollos. I'll climb to that next rung with this guy on his back. But Paul says, no, no more boasting in men. No more grabbing for what you can get on your terms. Why? He takes them right back to the gospel. Because all things are yours already. And you're Christ's and Christ is God's. Behind this language is the hope of the gospel. We are made God's children through Jesus. We are given an inheritance that, that is limitless. It will never run out. No one ever gets any more of it than anyone else. No one ever has to worry about where they measure up. They're just defined by their status as God's children, heirs of God's kingdom. Paul's getting down to the root cause here. He's not just telling them what to do and not to do. He's trying to work the gospel down into their hearts. He's giving them the medicine that they need to stop with all this posturing and pride. But guys, you're covered. Stop acting like you've got to figure out how to make the most of your life. 
Jesus has made that for you. Just take it. It's yours. Friends, disunity in a church is often going to stem from insecurity in us. From living as if what matters most is in short supply. Some are going to have it. Some are not. So I got to grab what I can. And unity in a church like ours. Unity is always going to come downstream of us getting convinced that what matters most cannot possibly run out, cannot possibly be destroyed, comes to us as a free gift, absolutely free, and comes to everyone equally who trusts in Jesus. Will you join me now as I pray that the Lord will take that medicine and apply it to our hearts? Father, we... We want to live as if we're your children, as if we have an inheritance no one can take that, that, that will never rust, it cannot be stolen, as if what matters most is ours completely through Jesus. That's how we want to live together. And we pray that by your spirit backing your word that's been preached even in these few moments, you would make us into that kind of people. We pray that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.